بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله وكفى والصلاة والسلام على المستفى الحمد لله منشي الخلق من عدمي سم الصلاة ولا المختار في القدم مولا يصلي وسلم دائما أبدا على حبيبك أخير الخلق كلهم وقال الله تعالى بعد عوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ولا تهنوا ولا تحزنوا وأنتم الأعلون وقال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم بعثت لأتمم مكارم الأخلاق أو كما قال عليه الصلاة والسلام My respected friends and brothers when it comes to despondency despondency in this ummah is haram and impermissible even if a person is on the cusp of death they still are to remain hopeful of the mercy of Allah and hopeful of victory. Even if a person is staring down the barrel of the gun of his enemy, it is still the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to remain hopeful, either of martyrdom or either of victory. For a person to become despondent, for a person to give up, for a person not to rely on the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, according to many scholars has been likened to kufr and disbelief, Maybe not in the literal sense, but the thoughts of being despondent is from the thoughts of kufr and disbelief, which a Muslim shies away and stays away from. So even in one's personal life, if you have tried everything, for example, somebody is sick, Allah Ta'ala grant us cure and shifa, but let's assume someone is sick or a near one is ill, or there is some social problem inside the household and you have, you have tried everything, and everything that you seem to try doesn't seem to work and your heart is paining, and your body is now giving in because of the stress. Even at that time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala demands that a Muslim remains hopeful in the promise of Allah. Because there have been plenty of examples before you. Ayyub alayhi salatu wasalam. Could there ever be a man that was more ill than Ayyub alayhi salatu wasalam? And not only that, you see one thing is a person is ill, but he had nothing before he was sick by way of health to talk about, by way of wealth to talk about. Ayyub alayhi salatu wasalam comes and came from a position of wealth, from a position of health. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tested him in both. So here you had a person who was the top of his world, physically and financially, and Allah ta'ala tests him with his health. But yet he continues to be patient, right up until the last point, wherein Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants him shifa and cure, he says, Oh Allah, that I'm remembering you, I'm remembering you to a point. That Allah Alusi rahmatullah records an incident regarding him. This is an Israeli riwayat, which means it is from the people of the past, it's not alluded to any hadith, that speaks about the sabr and the patience of Ayyub alayhi salatu wasalam, that on one occasion when Jibreel alayhi salatu wasalam comes to visit him, because he is the Nabi of Allah, the recipient of wahi and revelation, and asks him that, O oh Ayyub, uh, Assalamu alaikum. And Ayyub alayhi salam doesn't reply to him. Comes to him again another day. Ayyub, why didn't you reply to my salam the first time? And he says that there was a worm eating under my tongue. My whole body is full of maggots because of the sickness that he had, outward and inward. And I didn't want to disturb this one makhluk from its risk and its sustenance while it was busy eating me. This was at the end because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now doesn't test a person more than what they can bear. If a person is tested, then they are tested upon what they can bear. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cures him. And when that cure comes, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instructs Ayyub to stand behind his house. 
rain falls on him from the sky. And all that ridge and that filth that Allah Ta'ala describes that ailment as dirt and filth washes off his body. And then nuggets of gold, kaljarad, like, uh, like locusts, fall down upon Ayyub salam, And this was a replenishment of the wealth that he had lost earlier on. So he takes it and he rubs it on his body. And Allah Ta'ala says that, Ya Ayyub, you're taking this gold and you're rubbing it on your body. Are you not independent from whatever I'm sending down? He tells Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that, Oh Allah, I'm independent from the gold, but I'm not independent from your barakats. You see, your barakat coming down right now, it's not my own earnings, it's coming from the top. That means it's coming directly from you, I never asked for it. It's coming from your treasures and from your barakah. I want to make sure that forget the gold itself, the barakah of it coming from you directly. I don't want to become mahroom and I don't want to be deprived in any possible way. This is where Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran to the believers, La tahinu, that do not lose hope, do not be aggrieved. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make you alone. Allah ta'ala describes the mu'mineen in so many instances in the Quran. Khandaq at the time of the trench. They dug that trench on one side of Medina to munawwara When they wake up after a few days, they see that entire kuffar disbelieving army on the other side of the trench. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the way the sahaba radiallahu anhum reacted at that time. وَبَلَغَتِ الْقُلُوبُ الْحَنَاجِرِ Allah Ta'ala says that we know you all were so scared, O Muslims, that your heart was beating inside your chest to a point that it came all the hanajir is here, your throat. It came all the way beyond your chest. Like how when a person is in the midst of that fear and that concern, Allah Ta'ala save us, but from time to time we know exactly what that feeling is. We don't know who's on the other side of the door. We heard this noise. An accident is about to happen and we are right there. It's in front of our face. Where does the heart? If you can recall the beating of the heart at that point in time, Allah Ta'ala uses that description for the community of Madinatul Munawwara. Telling them that when you all saw them on the other side of the khandak of the trench, didn't your hearts beat to a point that it came to your throat? But what happened after that? He sent sakina and tranquility upon you. He sent peace upon you. That even though you felt that whatever could happen, happened. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has now so willed and decreed the very best to come to you. And eventually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made you victorious. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put you in a position of victory. Alhamdulillah. This is the, the himma, the courage of a mu'min. That a believer never loses hope. A believer has got conviction in the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That Allah ta'ala, we believe that everybody else could lie to us. But you know what? You will never lie to us because the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is true. You know, once a person asked, and this is recorded in one of the annals of our mashayikh in 1963. This was just before the 1967 war, the Arab-Israeli, so-called Arab-Israeli war. And one of the seniors of that particular area went to our mashayikh, Sheikh Mullah Yusuf Kandalvi, rahmatullahi And asked him that, Ya Sheikh, this is, is written in his annals wherein he says, that, you know, make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes the Yahud out of our lands. Now this conversation is taking place post and after 1948. He is a worker, he is, he is a person involved in dini activities from that particular part of the world. 
You know what the Hazrat tells him? That I make dua, Allahumma akhrijil yahudiyyata wa nasraniyyata min hayatil muslimin. That, O oh Allah, you take out the love of Yahudiyat and Nasraniyat from the hearts of the believers so that they can recognize what is their own before they are able and capable of fighting anything else. Because we have our own. And it is because of the love of the ghayr and the others that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will test this ummah from time to time. Listen here, where is your allegiance? Are you willing to change the direction of your life? And this is a collective test. It's not a test on the people of Gaza. It's not a test on the people of Palestine. What we are witnessing in front of our eyes is a collective test unto the Ummah, whether you're residing in China or Japan or here or anywhere for that matter. It is a collective test unto the Ummah and the response has to be collective as well. Those who are on the front line are the Mujahideen. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keep them firm. For they are representatives of the ummah in defense of the front line, in defense of their homeland. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant them victory. Al-jihadu madin. Jihad will continue in this ummah till the yawmul qiyamah. Rasulullah s.a.w. spoke about ribat in the Ahlul Sham, in that particular part of the world. It will continue and it will increase towards the end of qiyamah. And this is something that a Muslim needs to appreciate. Talking about jihad fi sabirillah, striving in the path of Allah with yourself and your, and your energy is a obligation upon the ummah. Something that we have quite neglected over the last few years. Speaking about the honor of shahadat and martyrdom, of dying in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The ghayr and the, and the littleness of this dunya and the necessity to stand on the front line and defend deen with one's body and with one's mal. Rather, we should make dua that Allah make us worthy candidates. Accept us. If shahadat and martyrdom is meant for us, then accept us in that realm because indeed it will be of the greatest honor to a believer to stand up as a martyr on the yawmul qiyamah fighting in the cause of one's deen. But you know what, my respected friends? There's from time to time, we need to learn from enemies. You know, hikmah and wisdom. Hikmah and wisdom can be learned from anybody. You can learn it from a Muslim. You can sometimes even learn, you can sometimes even learn hikmah and wisdom from the devil himself. The hadith of Ayatul Kursi. Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu says that Rasulullah sallam appointed me over the sadaqah of Ramadan. One elderly person comes in the middle of the night and he says, I'm complaining of, you know, uh, poverty and I've got family, I've got this. And he starts taking the kajur, the sadaqah, the charity, and he started, starts helping himself. A bucket load. Abu Huraira says, I caught him. Hey, what are you doing? You're stealing over here. I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of protecting this, 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 this pile. So he says, you know what, let me go man. I'm a poor man, I need this, I'm that, I'm battling, whatever. So Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu says, you know, okay, right, fine, you can go, don't come again. Rasulullah s.a.w. the next morning, Ya Abu Huraira, ma fa'ala asiruka al-bari'a, aw kama salatu wassalam. That, oh Abu Huraira, what happened to your prisoner last night? The guy you caught, Abu Huraira says, how does Rasulullah s.a.w. know that I went and arrested one fellow and let him go? He says, no, you know what, see that prisoner that you got, uh, he's a liar, but Sayyarji, he's going to return. He's going to come back. Next night, the same fellow comes back, filling his bucket, helping himself. And uh, Abu Huraira catches him. 
hey, I caught you again. What's wrong with you? This time I'm going to take you to Rasulullah because you're a thief. No, I'm a poor man and I'm this and I've got issues and I've got problems and therefore let me go. Abu Huraira said, okay, fine, okay, go. He goes away. Next morning, Rasulullah tells him again, that what happened to your prisoner last night, O Abu Huraira? You seem to be a very soft uh, warden. You're letting the guy go every time. Maybe we should appoint somebody else or something. What happened to your prisoner? This is but the system of Allah. Don't worry, he's going to come back again. Third night, he comes back. And he's filling a bucket. And now he's ready to leave once again. He's arrested once again. And he tells Abu Huraira this time, okay, fine, let me go for the third time. But you know what? I will teach you something. I will teach you something that you will be protected from every shaitan, whether it is the human form or the jinn form. You'll be protected. Recite Ayatul Kursi. In one narration after every salah, in one narration before you go to sleep. Nonetheless, the ulama say, you should do it after every salah and before you go to sleep as well, so that you make majmur and you unite between all the various riwayat and you are protected by Allah. Recite Ayatul Kursi then. Okay, fine, you can go. Next morning, Rasulullah asked him again, that your prisoner, what happened to him last night again? He says, you know what? Uh, I let him go, but he taught me something. What did he teach you? He says, I must recite Ayatul Kursi after every salah. We're using that narration. After every salah. So Rasulullah says, he spoke the truth, even though he's a liar. He spoke the truth, even though he's a liar. Ata'alamu that do you know, O Abu Huraira, who you have been speaking to all these nights? You've been speaking to shaitan, to iblis, who has come in a human form, but he has taught you something. So from here we can gain ever so once in a while, that even from our enemies, we can learn a thing or two as the ummah. And you know what? I'm going to quote a saying of one of our enemies, the enemies of the ummah. The president, rather the prime minister, before the 1967 war, was who? Golda Meir of Israel. Golda Meir, the auntie, the lady. Golda Meir. You know what she writes in one of her biographies? She says, what inspired me and this state, referring to her state of Israel, was the fact that I read in the biography of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that on the day that he passed away, there wasn't oil to light the lamp. We know this for a fact. It's, it's Sahih. There wasn't oil to light the lamp. But he had three swords. He had what? Three swords. He had an armor that was given to a Yahudi person in exchange for grain. So here he did not have oil to light his lamp and food to eat, but he had the weapons of war. And he was prepared to use it. And he was prepared to defend. And this inspired me and my nation. And you know what? Because it inspired them, they may have received worldly success. What about that ummah who claims the Nabi to be his own or their own? How much more lessons they should gain from that? That listen here, leave alone all your luxury and your food or whatever. Where are your weapons of war and where is your preparation to use it for the right cause? Two things. One thing is that you could have it, but you could be unwilling to use it because of fear or whatever the case may be. As we see today, you would rather drop it on the head of other Muslim people than drop it on the head of a real enemy for that matter where the war is. That's a bigger problem. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala demands that this ummah remains prepared. And whoever takes that advice, they'll receive their worldly success. They'll receive their temporary success. There's nothing for them in the akhirah because of their kufr and disbelief. There's no naseeb for them in the hereafter. But if they take that prophetic lesson, 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not going to deprive them of a life of success if they adopt simplicity of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa if they adopt the hard work, if they adopt courage, if they adopt honesty, if that is adopted by any nation, they will receive the help from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in their worldly matters. You know, all types of discussions come about now. Boycott, don't boycott. Really, it's up to the individual, it's up to you at the end of the day. But what we should be doing is at least reflect on your own life. How much and how little of the dunya can I do without? And also, it's also a time of reflection for the ummah. That we complain that our money is going to them. How much energy have we made to build up our own brand? Our own brand. And we have the capability of doing it. All these years, what we haven't had the capability of doing it. Even those who are the oil producers will take the same raw product and other people will brand it who are sitting in other countries and sell it, that the brand goes somewhere else. If we, we can't speak maybe on an international level, but on a national level. Does any one of us not have that capability that the very same brands that people are putting money for, that you create a Muslim brand? But the reason it's all about attitude, that as soon as you make five bucks, you want to put it in your pocket and not declare it, rather than creating that name and that brand that everybody can trust. Rasulullah spoke about a particular transaction, iqala. And you know what's this transaction all about? In fact, narrated in the, in, in the Mustad of Hakim, that a sahabi, a sahabi who was a, who was a farmer, all of a sudden, his companions see him, that he left farming, and he comes to the door of the masjid, and he's now selling things. What? He's selling things. So they tell him, what's wrong with you, man? You're a farmer, you came from here, you come from a whole line of farmers. Where in the world are you now resorting to business? He doesn't tell them anything. Trades, trades, trades. One day, after years, he closes up shop, and he goes back to farming. So they ask him, what happened? How come? Have you gone back to farming? And he says, you know what, I only open up the store for one reason. One reason and one reason only. I've heard Rasulullah say that if you conduct a transaction and the customer comes back to you and is not happy with their purchase, and there's no fault, there's no problem whatsoever, he's just not happy with that purchase. You give it back to him and you collect his money and the story is over and whoever does this in one narration, that that person, Jannah, will be wajib for that person because of the way you dealt with that customer. And I only opened up this business so that one customer will come to me after years and I can practice on this one hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam that I can now fall in that ambit. How much will it even cost an average size business if they have to do it once? But no, we have got that attitude in our head that if I give in to this fellow, then I've got to give in to his cousin tomorrow, and I've got to give in to his grandson tomorrow, and therefore I'll be broke at the end of the month, and then my grandchildren will be broke, and we will not be able to buy the palace that we are thinking of, and we can't go for Umrah every year. That's in our head. Rather than this, that you are creating a brand when you do this by even following the sunnah of Nabi wasallam. But who has picked up on this? Our very same enemies, the very same enemies that we are complaining and shouting at the top of our voice today, that you take that product and you don't even give them a reason why I want to change it, I'm not happy with it. What you think you're going to get a runaround? 
You think they're going to run you to the manager, to this store, to that store. Oh, you know what, this, that, what not, and give you 101 stories. They're going to practice upon exactly what we just said a minute ago. And they will not get any ajr and reward for it, obviously, because they're not mu'mineen and they're not believers. But what they will get out of it is the loyalty of the trade, the loyalty of the customer, which up until now, we have not realized in building that brand. And deen teaches us the building of that brand. Amwat, that where you have land that was lying fallow in Madinatul Munawwara, this is a fig practice. It comes in Hidayah as well. That Rasulullah created that system that whoever is willing to make that fallow land productive, you will get temporary ownership over it, provided you keep it active and keep the product produce in the community itself. Now, who is thinking of all of this here? Our Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He's thinking and he's making these avenues a source of reward for a believer, number one, and also an advancement in trade and commerce, which these guys have picked up on, not us. And when we think like this, and when we think of a brand, and when we view business as a service unto the ummah, rather than a five bucks in your pocket, and enjoying it right up until a period of time, then we will see that through that service, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will now reward us. So we can say a hundred and one times, up to the individual, what they want to do. But the reality is that it's also an opportunity for us to reflect of how we have fallen back on the values which are the principles of our deen and which we need to instill in order to create an alternative and a viable alternative at the same time. That don't put your money there, put your money here in the ummah because we will look after you better than anywhere else. And it's not just a South African problem, it's a global ummah problem wherever you go. Whether you go in the rich part of the world, the so-called Gulf part of the world, or any part of the world for that matter, it is unfortunately the same today-tomorrow mentality rather than the long-term service unto the ummah that must be... Rela- and this was contrary to the way Nabi wasallam lived. He taught the ummah, you live as if you're going to die tomorrow. But in your tradings, la aqlaka tadbir, in your interaction with your front line and the enemy, la aqlaka tadbir, that there is no intelligence like foreplanning, that where are we going to be tomorrow? Why did he declare the miqat of sham before he passed away? If the attitude of Rasulullah was that you know what we live for today and only for today and don't plan, the miqats that we use today were declared by him and the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, even when there wasn't even a Muslim community living in that part of the world. The Fadail of Sham was mentioned when there wasn't even a Muslim community in that part of the world. The Fadail of Yemen was when there was only a small inkling of a community meant over there. But he was looking down the line that the Ummah will increase. The Ummah following these principles will establish themselves. My respected brothers, there's a lot and there's plenty to be said. First of all, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant the Mujahideen victory. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all courage. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the himma to bear the humanitarian uh, effort when the time starts. May Allah ta'ala grant them victory with or without assistance from anywhere else because there is nothing short in the court of Allah. The Ababil came without any other 
application from any other government. Tsunamis and winds and the earth came, or even the wind at the time of the Khandaq that drove the kuffar away came without any application. Allah Ta'ala's system will work. It is up to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, but up to us to feel remorseful that how can this happen under our collective watch? Under our collective watch, then how can this year happen? And what can we do to improve the matter by way of assistance, by way of pressure, in whatever possible way, by any means necessary? What type of pressure could be done collectively unto the ummah? Self-reflection. Those people are performing salah in the most difficult of circumstances. Their current water allocation is 2.7 liters per person, 2 million people. But yet we have not heard that salah has been stopped or skipped in any one of the masajid, destroyed or undestroyed for that matter. People have even been gunned down coming back from Fajr Salah. Has that prevented them from Fajr Salah? The bomb, 16,000 tons of bombs on your head so far, you still there for Fajr. What does this tell us? The himma of the ummah and they, alhamdulillah, are a sterling example in our time. Learn from that. Learn from that by way of himmat on salah. By promising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. By when a mother says, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. It is her joy that my child or my children are martyred for the sake of Allah. And I'll be reunited with them in the akhirah. What is this? This is called yaqeen. That we will be reunited in the akhirah. That this world is nothing but a temporary gain. I'll conclude up in one minute's time. You know, my respected friends, is of course the election time. Now from the member or from wherever it is, we could choose to deal with it in different ways. One is that we could not mention it and exist and act like it doesn't exist, bury head, our head in the soil like ostrich and say, you know what, oh, you know what, we're living in, we're living in la-la land or paradise land and there's no such a thing as voting in South Africa. Or the other thing is that we could talk about it and we could discuss it, what is the Islamic aspect regarding it. People want to know, people ask. Now look, there is no single one particular way and approach that our ulama especially here have adopted. And really it is up to you to seek counsel from those, alhamdulillah, who you trust. However, the general rule, and has been the general rule, is number one. When we look at democracy, autocracy, or any ism for that matter, first of all, even if a person is going to vote, look at it as an imposed system. Our system is a system of khilafah. Our system is a system of an Amir and Hakim, a Khalif. Whatever other system a Muslim may be involved in, because of a zarura, a necessity like us, must be viewed as what? An imposed system that we are allowed to choose whatever is the lesser of the two evils. But ultimately, it is not the ideal. The ideal is the Khilafah as existed in this Ummah for so many centuries and which the desire remains that it returns back sooner or later, inshallah. That is the Muslim system. But in the interim period, we are where we are. We're not anywhere else. We're not living in Afghanistan. We're not living in Kyrgyzstan. We're not living in Russia. We're here now at this point in time. What does a person do? Seek guidance from those who, you know, of course, who you normally seek guidance from. However, the advice generally seems to be that if a person wants to participate, alhamdulillah, 
A person can do so, and a person can vote, on this understanding that number one, it's an imposed system, and secondly, I know that whoever I put my X or my ballot there, is never going to be a representative of Islam. That is naive even to think in that particular way. No matter who you're voting for, red, yellow, green, whatever, yellow, orange, whatever, colors they are out there in this year's ballot. There seems to be like 70, 75 colors, but anyway, whoever you're putting an X next to, well, it's naive to even think that that individual is a representative of deen. However, the attitude should be that in my opinion, they are the lesser of the different evils that are out there. That's all a person can do. What else can you do? But at the very least, if a person wants to be counted, at least be counted with this knowledge, that hold those people accountable. That when the time comes that they make the ridiculous statements, not only regarding Israel and Palestine, regarding LGBTQ, regarding all other issues, regarding corruption, regarding everything else, you have the liberty to make a noise saying, I put my ex next to you. I'm do, I did this here only so that I could hold you accountable, not that I like you in any way. So that if, if a person goes with it in that attitude, that could be the very least. Allah Ta'ala knows best. The system itself is new to our community. And not only our community, all over. The original system is the Khilafah system. And since the 20s, 30s, and 40s, it is an introduced system that the ulama advise, you choose the lesser of the two evils. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide us, and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive our mistakes. Ameen.